0: Well, uh, I'll be honest with you, I had a uh, completely different introduction uh, written for the sermon earlier this week, Uh, and if you know me at all, it was uh, full of personal stories and cheap laughs, because that's what I do. Um, But then I turned on the news, and uh, everything changed, and uh, suddenly I felt like the words I'd prepared there uh, just weren't enough, weren't adequate. And uh, I, have, I have to apologize to you because I don't, I don't uh, usually, and I actually don't like starting sermons off on, 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 a, on a difficult note, uh, but I just, I just didn't know what else to do this week. And I was so thankful, Austin and Brittany Knoll, who, who came and led us in a prayer, that, that they reached out to me and, and offered to do that because in some ways, where I was emotionally, I just didn't know what to say. These cycles of, of violence in our country, it feels like every, <laughs> every week against minorities, against police officers, and the outpouring of hatred and rage after every single one of those things uh, was very overwhelming to me. And in many ways, uh, if I'm honest, right, this is nothing new, what we're seeing. Racial prejudice and abuse of power and anti-authoritarianism and violence and death and all of that stuff. There's nothing new about any of that. But honestly, that, that's the part That bothers me the most. As I read tweets and blogs and messages from African-American brothers and sisters and emails from Pastor Stan Archie at Christian Fellowship here in Kansas City and from family members who have loved ones in law enforcement and who've lost loved ones in the service of their community and I think we all kind of feel the same way and it's the same question of when does this stop and how does it stop? And it got me thinking, okay, what, what about the church and all of that? Is there hope for her to be different? Do we have something to say that's worthwhile? Or are we just another shouting voice in the chaos of all this anger? And, and Jesus uh, reminded me this week, uh, it's, uh, it's through this passage, but in other ways too, and I, sometimes I need this, he, he said, yes, of course, there's always hope. In Jesus, there's always hope. I needed that reminder this week. But this passage also reminded me that we are, as a church, we are armed with a message, with a story that the world needs desperately. It's always needed it, but there are times where people are open to it and they they feel the need for it. And this is one of those times, I think. And this passage, which we just heard read, is is, is, uh, a summary of that story we have. And it's the first time in Matthew, if you've been with us, where Jesus very explicitly talks about his, his death. He says, to save you from yourselves, I have to die. I have to go to the cross and I have to die. And then Jesus will turn to you and me and to his church and to his people and anyone who would follow after him. And he says, if you want anything to do with me and this life I've come to offer you, you have to die too. I must die to save the world. And you must die to yourself to save the world. And our country now, our world right now, it needs both. It needs a savior who died. And we'll talk more about why that is in just a minute. But we also need a church that's died to itself, who can love our enemies and speak grace and truth in a world that has neither. Because Jesus says, the life I've come to give you, this wise life, this good life, this joyful life, this enduring and persevering life, does not go around my cross. It goes through my cross. I have to die, says Jesus. I have to die, and, and so do you. So let's take a look. Matthew 16, uh, starting in verse 21. Uh, let's look. Why does Jesus say this? Let's, let's find out. If you are here last week, uh, we talked about verses 13 to 20. which come just before this. And uh, that's where Peter, the disciple is the first person to kind of put together who Jesus is. He, Jesus says, who do you think I am? And Peter says, I think you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes, you get it. Finally, you get it. And then Matthew tells us right after that, okay, this is kind of one story that we, we split into two, but this is really one story. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. (laughs) And like we said earlier, this is really the first time we hear from Jesus exactly what his mission in the world is. Because it's not simply to teach, though Jesus is an amazing teacher, and we've seen that. And it's not simply to heal, though Jesus is an incredible, powerful healer, and he heals many people in his ministry. And it's not to reign on a throne, even though Matthew is clearly telling us this is the king of the world. No. Jesus says, here's my mission. He he lays it out very clearly here. He says, I must suffer and I must die. I must be killed. So here we see, yet again, that that Jesus is unlike any king we would have imagined. And we see, too, he's unlike any, any Messiah Peter ever imagined. And Matthew tells us that after hearing Jesus talk about this, Peter kind of pulls Jesus aside. He says, let me me talk to you for a minute. And he says, Jesus, no way. No, that won't happen to you. In fact, stop talking like that. This word rebuke is very strong. This is the same word Jesus uses to cast out demons. He tells a demon to be quiet. This is the word. He rebukes them. Now Peter's using it with Jesus. Jesus, you're the Christ, son of the living God. But stop talking like that. So why? He's upset. He's emotional. Why? Well, this is not the Messiah he anticipated, okay? In Peter's day, he was no doubt raised this way, and his contemporaries were raised this way. They believed in Messiah. God was sending an anointed one to come save his people, to come defeat evil and corruption in the world, and then reign in Jerusalem. That's the picture they had. Let me just give you an example of where that comes from. So Psalm 2. Very, very important psalm. No doubt Peter would have memorized this probably at some point in his life. Just listen to it. "'Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision.' Then he'll speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, "As far as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill." And Peter says, basically saying to Jesus, "This is who you are, right? Power, might, control, authority. This is who you are. You're the king of the nations. No one can stop you. Why are you talking about suffering and death? That's not what Messiah does." And Peter is basically here accusing Jesus of not knowing his Bible. He says, Jesus, go back and read Psalm 2. That's who you are. (laughs) Now, what Peter and the Jews of his day had never put together was Psalm 2 and Isaiah 53. Listen to that. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Right? Jesus says, yes, Peter, I, I am the psalm to Messiah. I am the anointed one. But I am also the suffering servant. Yes, I will go to Jerusalem, I will go to Zion, but not to reign. not this time. I'm going to die there. And yes, the nations, they rage against me, yes. But for the time being, they're going to win. They're going to kill me. That's what's going to happen. And Peter did not anticipate that, nor, more importantly, did he want it. He didn't even want to consider that his Messiah would die a humiliating, shameful death like a criminal on a cross. This is unthinkable to him. Jesus, you must be wrong, and he he rebukes him. And see, Peter, on the one hand, Peter cannot imagine a life of suffering and death for Jesus, and Jesus, on the other hand, cannot imagine his life without it. They're diametrically opposed. And Jesus feels so strongly about this that he tells Peter, he says, you are speaking on behalf of Satan. what you're saying. He says, get behind me, Satan. And Jesus, he gives no wiggle room to Peter or us. He does not say, I might, I'm going to Jerusalem and I might suffer and die, or I think I'm going to suffer and die. I'm pretty sure I'm going to suffer and die. He says, I must suffer and I must die. He couldn't put it any stronger. He's saying, this is why I'm here. This is my purpose. This is my mission." I cannot do what I've set out to do unless I die. I cannot save you. I cannot redeem the world. I cannot be the Messiah without this. I have to die. I must. Why? It's a very big question. And it's not not answered directly in this text, in this passage. But I, I think sometimes we're confused enough about it that I want to spend a few minutes on it. And frankly, I think until we understand why Jesus dies, I'm not sure we have anything to say to the violence we are seeing around us today in our country. Why does Jesus have to die? There's, lo- there's, there's, there's lots of ways to unpack this. I'm going to give you two. Jesus first, he had to die because we are his enemies. All of us. Every single one of us. We're his enemies. The Bible talks a lot about sin and disobedience. Maybe you may be familiar with those terms, but those are symptoms of a larger, more dangerous problem. The problem is human beings, it's not that we make mistakes, though we do, it's that we are God's enemies. We have rebelled against Him. That's the problem. That sounds really dramatic, I know, but it's true. And it's the biblical teaching. And frankly, if you look at your life for just a minute, it's pretty clear. That this, even in our own lives, we, we experience this. We make promises to God that we don't keep, probably more than to anybody else. We lie to Him more than anybody else. We offend Him with our secret thoughts and our choices and our motives. And, and they, they would offend everyone, but no one else can, has access to them, only He does. We ignore His commands, even when we know better. We do not love what He loves. We don't honor His image in our neighbor. I mean, you you turn on the news, you read the newspaper, this is incredibly verifiable. That list could go on and on. The point is, in our natural state, we are all of us enemies of God. That is not a popular thing to say, I know. It wasn't popular for Peter either. He didn't like that. He, He can't imagine that Jesus has to die because he thinks that God's enemy is very concrete. It's Rome. Go get him. Jesus, go take care of the oppressor, this, the, this, these pagan people. Go get rid of them. Go get justice against your enemies, and we will all be okay. The world will be right, because I am on your side. <laughs> See, even Jesus, or Peter's worldview, right, is us versus them. The world's problem is us versus them. I'm good, you're bad. Even Peter thought, I'm God's friend, I'm in the right. Right, Jesus? And they're wrong, so go get them. And it's not hard to think, do we do the same thing? Yes. We draw lines. Where we draw the line is almost beside the point. Okay, conservative people draw it here. Progressive people draw it here. The the point is, there's a line. And I am on the right side of it. That's what Peter thought. But this text, put. what if the problem is bigger than that? See, what if you're... You're looking for a them, for God to get rid of, but he turns to you and says, no, 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 you. You are the problem. What if Jesus looks at us and says, I have to die, not because they are my enemies, but because you are. What does that do to these lines we've drawn? You see, everyone's an enemy. Everyone. And this cosmic rupture between us and God has pretty much ruined everything. It's broken us, it's broken our relationships. It's broken our world. And so every person, not just certain people, every person has deeply offended God by the way we've lived. And, and he, in turn, cannot ignore that. That's not how the universe works. It's not how our lives work. When someone hurts or offends you, right, they say something to you that hurts you. They do something to you that damages you. You know intuitively that until you deal with what just happened, you can't be in a relationship anymore. You can't just be friends with someone after they've hurt you. There's gotta be some kind of payment. And really, fundamentally, in that moment, you've got two choices. You can either make that person pay for what they've done. You can hurt them back. You can wish them ill. You can break relationship with them to punish them. You can make them pay. You can hate them or you can forgive them. You absorb the cost for what they've done. That's why forgiveness, when you you really forgive someone who's really hurt you, it's incredibly painful. It's excruciating. It's because it costs so much. Because you're paying for what someone else has done to restore your relationship again. You hurt me. You betrayed me. You lied to me. But I forgive you. I'm not going to hold that against you. I'm not going to punish you. I'm not going to manipulate you. You see, now, on a very human level, we understand that. It's the same with God. Jesus says, I must die for your sin because either you pay for it with your life or I pay for it with mine. See, I have to absorb your punishment to put you in right relationship with God again. I must suffer and I must die. And many of us, we don't want to hear that. Because that means admitting that the problem isn't out here, it's in here. Peter didn't understand that. He didn't want it. He thought Rome was the problem. Jesus, go take care of them. We might say, Jesus, go punish them, those those people over there. They're wrong. They're the problem. Whoever your them is, Jesus says, your problem is so much worse than that. I need to die for you. Jesus must die so that we can be forgiven. That's the first point. The second, he also has to die so that we can be loved, so that we can know how deeply loved we truly are. Because once you understand that forgiveness is costly, if God wants us back, he's got to pay for your sin. We can't do it, only he can do it. Once you realize how terrible a price must be paid, Jesus has to die. The next question you've got to ask is, well, then why, if it's so bad, then why do it? The way Jesus talks about his death, he's very determined. This is not an accident. Jesus is not a helpless victim in circumstances beyond his control. He knows exactly what's coming, and he is choosing it. If Jesus had a choice, if he could have said no to the cross, why did he do it? And, and the Bible will only give you one answer. It's because he loves you. He, he loves you so much. He was willing to die a shameful death on a cross. He was willing to be misunderstood by even his closest friends. He was charged as a criminal, though he was innocent, and he was executed under the grossest miscarriage of justice the universe has ever known. And get this, he is willing to do all of that and let you walk away. You can see him on the cross. You can hear him say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And you can still turn your back on him because he loves you so much, he will not coerce you. He will not force you. And when you, put it, when you really think about that, there is no offer of love like that in the world. Nothing. Okay, lots of religions and people talk about God's love. They talk about how God loves everybody. Only Christianity can claim to show you exactly how much he loves how far he was willing to go, what he was willing to lose to get you back. And once you see that Jesus died and you realize he could have chosen otherwise, you begin to see the love of God for you. He had, he had to die or you would never have understood. You would never would have seen how far you've run, how disastrous our rebellion really is. That's what the cross is. is you're seeing how disastrous it is. And how far he was willing to go to get you back to see how how deep is the Father's love for us, that you see it here. Now, basically what I've been telling you is is Christianity 101. You can't ever get over that stuff. But that's the easy, believe it or not, that was the easy part of the sermon. (laughs) Because what Jesus does next, he's not done talking, right? When Jesus keeps talking, even I am tempted to pull him aside and say, Jesus, you couldn't have meant this. Because Jesus doesn't teach us here only that he has to die. He teaches us that you've got to die. If you want to follow me, you have to die with me. Look at verse 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is saying as only he can say, he loves these paradoxes. He says, if you want to live, you've got to die. Now, in a very real sense, okay, Jesus meant this literally because for most of the people hearing him, the disciples, they literally died following Jesus. Some of them literally, as far as we know, carried their own cross for their death for Jesus. And for thousands and thousands of Christians today, they read these words and they read them literally. That's true. But Jesus doesn't only mean here a willingness to die for our faith. He does mean that. But he also, it's also a willingness to live for him and only him, even if it costs you everything. And in some ways, that is just as hard a thing to do as die for him outright, isn't it? They're both pretty high callings. Because what Jesus is really asking of us, die to yourself, deny yourself, turn your back on your self-interest, and follow me no matter what. Very few of us actually do. And certainly very few of us want to do it. And, and I hate to put it this way, but I, I had to come to terms with this myself. When I refuse to do that, when I don't want to do that, when I don't want to die to myself, what I'm saying to Jesus is, Jesus, it's okay for you to die for me. There's no way I'm going to die for you. And yet, I, I don't want us to miss this. This is important. Jesus isn't asking this of us f- for his sake. He's asking this of you. He's asking you to die to yourself for your sake, to live the life you're actually created to live. See, notice Jesus doesn't say, whoever loses his life or her life will be obedient. That's true. He actually, here's what he actually says. He says, whoever loses his life will find it. In other words, Jesus is making a promise to you. He's saying, if you really want life, if you want it to the full, you have to die. There's no other way. That's what it means to be my disciple. Okay, two implications there. First, we have to die to be free. Here's what Jesus is offering us here. He's offering you freedom. You have to die to be free. To be truly free, we have to die to ourselves. And he he illustrates this point in verse 26. He says, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Right. Another, you could read another way of putting that. Let me translate that a little bit for you. What does it profit you to get everything you have ever wanted from the world? Everything you've ever wanted. But to lose your very life in the process. What have you gained? See, Jesus is saying here, he's it's like, I know it sounds harsh, that to follow me, you've got to die to yourself. But look at your life now. How's it going? As you run after the world, how's it going for you? Are you happy now? Is living for your agenda and your plan and your dreams, is that working now? Is the anxiety you deal with and the dread and the fear you live with every day worth it now? Is your hatred or your bigotry or your violence, is that working for your society now? Is working so hard to avoid suffering and pain by getting the right job or the right salary or the perfect family or the right boyfriend or the right clothes or all the other junk we spend our lives on? Is any of that making us happier or better off? Does it actually save us at the end of the day from any of the pain and suffering and death that we're working so hard to avoid? Has any of it saved us from a frightening and prejudiced and violent world that we live in today? And Jesus' answer is no. No, it hasn't. It hasn't helped you at all. What does it profit you, says Jesus, basically, to turn me down and continue running your own life into the ground. If you want real freedom from fear and anxiety and suffering and death and from hatred of your neighbor because you're both my enemies, you've got to die to yourself. And you've got to follow me completely. But here's the promise. If you can lose your life like that, if you can do that, you can practice that, what you'll find on the other side is it better. You'll find your life. Lose your life and you'll find it. You'll become who you were truly meant to be. And C.S. Lewis is a favorite of ours here, and he puts this so well in your Christianity. He says, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. And the more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated, read, enslaved, By my own heredity and upbringing and surrounding and natural desires. My wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts. It's when I turn to Christ, when I give myself to his personality, that I finally begin to have a real personality all my own. You see, now you've met this person that he's describing. You've met the person who is free in Jesus like this because you've seen them suffer something. Here's the key. You've seen them suffer something that should have destroyed them. You have seen them carry a cross that should have crushed a human being. Because when we live for our own happiness or comfort or agenda or our own tribe, things like suffering and failure and rejection, they are deadly. If we're slaves to success or comfort, when we lose those things, we lose our very, the very meaning of our lives. But for someone who's already died to self, suffering and loss are terrible. They're still terrible. But you can carry your cross behind Jesus and know that he's with you. You see, Jesus is promising a freedom here that no education, no effort, no hard work, no success or luck can give you. It's a freedom we can only have when we follow behind him to the cross. Die to ourselves and find we can truly live. Die to ourselves so that we can truly love our enemies and pray for them even on a week like this one. To be free in this life, Jesus says, you've got to die first. But you also have to die. Second point, to be raised from the dead. If you want to be raised from the dead, you've got to die. And you see this hinted here, uh, Jesus in verse 27. He's hinted several places, but in verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Now, Jesus is all, he's saying here, I'm coming back, and your response to me means everything. That's the first thing he means here. But he also means here, he's hinting here, the real promise of this verse is Jesus is saying that the cross, his cross and your cross, his suffering and your suffering, His death and your death are not the end of the story. He's saying on the other side of the cross is the Father's glory. On the other side of the cross is a coronation in heaven. On the other side of the cross is resurrection. And he's saying if you follow me to my cross, you will follow me out of my tomb. That's the promise here. If you can die to yourself, whatever you hand to him, will be raised to eternal glory. Whatever you hand to Him. And again, Lewis has a great one-liner here. He says, Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. If you can give Him, for example, if you can give Him your pride, if you can give Him your ambition for success or applause, if you can hand over your lust for power and control, if you can submit your fear, if you can let go of your career, if you could give him your children, how to raise them even if it terrifies you, if you can give him your marriage even if it feels dead to you, your hatred of your enemies and those who've hurt you, if you can give those things to him, he will raise them from the dead. Jesus says, I have to die. And if you want to know me and follow me, you've got to die too. And after everything that's happened this week and will no doubt continue to happen until Jesus comes again, all I can say is this. The world and our country and our neighbors here in Kansas City, they need a Savior who died. And it needs a people who've died. Died to self. Died to prejudice. Died to selfishness. Died to fear. Died to hatred. And have been raised from the dead. May we, by God's help, be that people.